0: Here, here, and now. Here, here, and now. Welcome to the Here and Now podcast. The Here and Now podcast is about psychology, philosophy and life. But that may not be obvious in the topic of this episode. But it is. You see, the field of psychology considers not just conscious thought and behavior, but also the underlying physiological processes that give rise to both thought and the sense of self. These are also fundamental concepts found in the branch of philosophy known as metaphysics. So the topic of this episode is proprioception and kinesthesia. This is the physical process of awareness of the position of the body in space and its movement. The story begins in the late 1800s, when a neurologist by the name of Charles Sherrington deduced that there must be a sixth sense, underlying the haptic sense, that's the sense of touch, which determines our perception of ourself. Something that informs the awareness we have of our body as a three-dimensional object in space, which we inhabit and over which we have control. Where the sense of smell is derived from the nose, and sight the eyes, this sense of self cannot be traced to a specific organ or body part. Rather, it is the collective result of signals sent by receptors located throughout the body and their interface through the nervous system with the brain. This is the sense of proprioception, and it's defined by the Collins English Dictionary as the neurological ability of the body to sense movement and position. And it's only half the story. Technically, proprioception refers just to the position element of that definition. The perception of movement is actually what is called kinesthesia, and we'll come to that one shortly. So the word proprioception comes from the Latin proprius, or own, to highlight that the sense is not externally stimulated, as the eye is by light, but is derived entirely from within. Proprioception is characterised by a sense of position and is related to the balanced senses and is managed cognitively, just like the other senses, that is to say processing of information takes place in the brain. The receptors for proprioception are located in the muscles of our body, they're known as spindles. They sense the stretch of muscles and report this information to motor neurons located in the spinal column. These messages are then transmitted to the motor cortex of the brain. Conversely, when movement is desired, the motor cortex commands the required movement of the motor neurons, and they coordinate the action of the muscles to achieve the intended outcome. The motor cortex itself doesn't command the individual muscles to move. It only sends a request for an outcome. For instance, if I want to pick up a glass, My brain doesn't command my shoulder, my forearm, my wrist, my fingers and thumb to move precisely in a way that is needed to grasp the glass with just the right amount of pressure. It simply sends the command to the motor neurons to pick up the glass. The movements themselves and their coordination is handled by the interaction of those neurons with the proprioceptors. There's a second type of proprioceptor called Golgi, which act more like shock absorbers and these are there to limit extreme movements of our limbs to prevent damage. Now, what is interesting is that the somatosensory cortex, and that's the area of the brain responsible for feeling each part of the body, is located just adjacent to the motor cortex. In order to move a body part, you need to be able to feel it. So these two distinct and quite separate senses take place very close together in the brain, but they are not the same thing, and this has remarkable implications. Proprioception can be conscious, such as the movement of an arm to brush hair out of your eyes, or non-conscious, such as the writing reflex, where a tilt of the body causes you to reflexively cock your head to level your visual plane. This reflex occurs in infants almost as soon as their neck muscles are able to support the weight of their head. It's controlled by the cerebellum, which is a dense bundle of neurons at the base of the brain that resembles a small brain. If you clench your hand into a fist and imagine that it's your brain, the area around the lower side of your wrist is where your cerebellum is located. In the motor sensory and somatosensory cortices, Are Located in the parietal lobe and this would be just behind your knuckles The related concept of kinesthesia describes the sense of movement It concerns how our body and limbs move acts such as walking or swinging a tennis racket or raising a glass of beer It's also about the speed and dexterity of movement So it's not just your awareness of where your left foot is in relation to your right foot, which is the proprioceptive sense kinesthesia is about how your feet move in relation to each other, let's say. And it also takes into account other sensory inputs from the cutaneous receptors located within the skin, all over your body. And they may sense, say, the sensation of air rushing past your arm here when it is moving. And all of that feeds back into your somatosensory cortex to give you the impression of movement. Now, as an aside, it's actually a wonderful mindfulness exercise to take notice of the feeling of air rushing past your fingers or arms while you're walking. Assuming you aren't wearing long sleeves or gloves and try it. Just pay attention to the most subtle of details It's a pleasant distraction from your busy mind to notice the feeling of air moving past your fingers while you're walking The kinesthetic aspect of proprioception may also be thought of as muscle memory But of course our muscles can't form memories So when we rehearse a movement many times to the point where we can perform an action flawlessly We've essentially trained our proprioceptors to inform the brain of where the body is in space and in relation to its range of motion. This pathway becomes so well-defined that we essentially form a neural pathway from different areas of our body to the parietal cortex where that sensory stimuli is then synthesized into our individual experience. And our system's understandably complex and quite remarkable. And here's a little experiment you can try just to test a limitation of your proprioceptive and motor sensory system. Okay, so sit down and raise your right leg. Now move your right foot in small clockwise circles. Good. Now raise your right arm and move your right hand in counterclockwise circles. Which way is your foot moving now? Okay, so keep your foot moving in clockwise circles. Now raise your left hand and try and move your left hand counterclockwise. Notice the difference? Your brain is unable to process counter-inputs to the same or ipsilateral side of the body, but it has no trouble with opposites. It demonstrates that your spinal cord actually has distinct lateralness, that is, there's a left and a right side, and you can't send conflicting signals down the same side. So back to Sherrington, thinking about why did he name this sixth sense proprioception, from a sense of oneself or being derived solely from within, it starts moving this whole idea to one that is more philosophical. The notion of a sense of self goes back to Socrates, remember he was the guy with the beard. Owen Hume as well, he was the clean shaven fellow who talked about a bundle of perceptions that make up our awareness of our self as a constant. To be aware of one's presence in space is an element of consciousness, an extension of the you living in your head. But rather than delve into the philosophical concepts today, I'm more interested in what this sense means to us for everyday life, and what happens if it disappears. Oh, I forgot to mention, it can disappear. Oliver Sacks was a neurologist. He wrote a book in the 1980s called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. In it, he describes various bizarre cases he dealt with throughout his career. Here's an excerpt from a chapter titled The Disembodied Lady. It reads, Standing was impossible unless she looked down at her feet. She could hold nothing in her hands, and they wandered unless she kept an eye on them. When she reached out for something, or tried to feed herself, Her hands would miss or overshoot wildly, as if some essential control or coordination was gone. She could scarcely even sit up, her body gave way. Her face was oddly expressionless and slack, her jaw fell open, even her vocal posture was gone. Something awful's happened, she mouthed in a ghostly flat voice. I can't feel my body, I feel weird, disembodied. The woman was only 27, she was a mother of two. She was fit and active and leading a somewhat successful life when she began to struggle with balance and mobility. Soon she had lost all physical sense of herself. She had no perception of her body. She wasn't paralyzed. She could still move her body. She just couldn't feel it. She described how she would lose her arms. She said, I would think they were in one place and find they are in another. It's like my body's blind. It can't see itself. Tess revealed that she had polyneuritis, an inflammation of the spinal nerves, and this did irreparable damage to her proprioceptive system, a condition known as sensory ataxia. The woman had to relearn how to move by using her sight in place of her proprioceptive system, a so-called sensory substitution. By carefully observing her arms and legs, she could manage movement in an awkward way. When in the dark, however, she could not even stand. But over time, neural plasticity allowed her brain to adapt as her sense of sight replaced her proprioception. It wasn't perfect, but she did manage to continue her life, albeit with great effort. For instance, if she became distracted while eating, she would drop her fork or perhaps grip it too tightly. She would never regain a sense of herself. She would spend her life disembodied, a consciousness without physical form. And while this woman retained her mobility despite her loss of proprioception, This is obviously not the case for those who suffer damage to the spinal column, which renders them paralysed. The brain is undamaged, but is no longer able to send or receive information to the proprioceptors. Loss of one's sense of self may even occur with no underlying physical symptoms at all. It's a mental health disorder known as depersonalization, and often follows severe trauma or anxiety. For those who suffer loss of proprioception, though, employing the adaptive ability of the brain, that's its neuroplasticity, makes it possible to use sensory substitution to provide a sense of self through, say, artificial limbs and other sensory feedback mechanisms. There's a widely used experiment in neurology which demonstrates the power of neuroplasticity and, in essence, how easy it is to fool the sense of being embodied. It's the so-called rubber hand illusion. There's a link in the show notes to a great example on YouTube from a Nat Geo documentary. It works like this. The subject places their hands on a table and a box is placed over one hand so it can't be seen. And on top of that box, in more or less the same position as the subject's hand beneath, is a rubber hand. It's quite clearly a rubber hand. The subject knows it's not their own. The experimenter then gently brushes both the rubber hand and the subject's actual hand with a very small brush. Quite quickly, the subject will begin to feel and believe that the rubber hand is their own. The sensation is even more compelling when the rubber hand is connected to the subject's hand so that movements of the actual hand are perfectly synchronised with the rubber hand. Another related and more well-known example of loss of proprioception comes from the phenomenon known as phantom limb syndrome. It is common among amputees who seem to retain the physical memory of the limb. It could affect a body part as large as a leg or even as small as a toe. Even though the limb is no longer there, the individual still feels it, and it is often painful, having a significant and long-term impact on their quality of life. It may ache, itch, or otherwise cause discomfort. One gentleman described by Sachs in his book had to pretend to slap his missing leg when he got out of bed in the morning to wake it up, or he would be unable to move around with the remaining fully functioning parts of his body. Phantom limb syndrome offers a useful insight into the nature of proprioception and the motor somatosensory regions of the brain, as it seems somewhat obvious that these neural pathways that have been formed throughout one's life continue to exist even after the limb is gone. The neurons that once controlled those proprioceptors are still there, and they will never forget the well-worn patterns of behavior unless they can be retrained or rather rewired. An interesting treatment for phantom limb pain was first proposed by the Indian neuroscientist V.S. Ramachandran, who developed this mirror box. This works using the same type of neurological process as the rubber hand illusion. The subject simply places their existing limb, say an arm, in a box with a mirror, so they appear to have the arm which was amputated. If they move their hand and arm, the brain interprets the visual information they can see of the reflection of their arm as if they were moving their missing limb. And this treatment is shown to be effective at reducing pain for many amputees, and it's been observed in a number of scientific studies, although full clinical interpretation is not yet definitive. There's a fascinating TED talk which Ramachandran does on the phenomenon, and you'll be able to find the link to that in the show notes. While proprioception and kinesthesia are concepts of position and movement of the body, They are integrated with the haptic sense of touch, which provides supplementary information to the brain in order for it to be able to determine how the body is moving in space. The haptic sense is both coarse and fine, and I find this concept fascinating. You can kick a ball, which is a strong physical motion, or you can jump, sending pulsing shock waves through your muscles and bones, but you can also very gently brush a single hair on your hand. You can feel the burning heat of a hot mug of coffee, or the freezing cold sting of an ice cube or you can feel the subtle warmth of a gold ring when it was just removed from your finger. This range and depth of haptic sensation is most acute on the tongue, which is perhaps the most sensitive organ of the body, which has not only a sense of taste, but an extremely precise haptic sense from thousands of tiny receptors. The high sensitivity of the tongue has made it ideal for use in a visual tactile sensory substitution for visually impaired people. And this works by placing a feedback array in the mouth, which is then passed visual information from a video camera. The array is stimulated in such a way that a tactile visual picture is formed, allowing the person to literally see with their tongue. The acute sensitivity of the tongue is most obvious to us when we have an ulcer, which, aside from being extremely painful and uncomfortable, it feels like a gaping sore when, upon close inspection, it's revealed that it's just a tiny dot. The sensitivity of the tongue is even further pronounced following dental work, when, say, a filling has been set. You know your own mouth as well as you know any part of your body. The way the tongue rests against the jaw, the pattern of movement your tongue makes when you think and talk and eat, drink, breathe, every nuance of behaviour has a familiarity that you take totally for granted, or that is until it changes. Now a dentist can work the perfect craft, setting the filling, grinding it down, checking your bite until she's satisfied that it is just so. But as the local anaesthetic wears off, your mouth suddenly feels foreign, something's clearly not right you sense that slight bump in the tooth that's ever so slightly changed as from what it was before, and it's so obvious as if you had a a chicken wing stuck between your teeth. All the subtlety of sensation in the mouth is focused on this one change, and at first you wonder how you'll ever live with this deformity. But over time, maybe a day or a week, the alien protuberance is welcomed into the map of your mouth, and your tongue has grown accustomed to its presence, and essentially a new you has been formed. It's a curious thing that the sense of self is in large part derived from our sensory interface with the outside physical world. When it is taken away, distorted or otherwise changed, we can lose our sense of identity. You may no longer be you. This is a remarkable thing, to think that you are not just your consciousness, but also your physical presence. However, as intrinsic as this is to our being, it's easily fooled. Every time we dream, we step outside of our physical body. Yet for the most part, we do not lose our sense of ourself. We can substitute one sense for another, and we can even lose our sense of self without having any physical ailment whatsoever. You exist as a continuum of awareness, some of which comes from the physical world, and some of which does not. So just as your thoughts are not real, as far as your brain is concerned, your body might not be either. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Here and Now Podcast or Twitter at Here Now Podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes, and be sure to give us a rating at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or at the email, email now at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.